In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What makes one great? At times, the Bible can be refreshingly frank. On the road to Galilee, Jesus' disciples don't want to tell him what they were arguing about because, quote, they had been debating with each other about who was the greatest. No subtlety there. Can you imagine how that conversation really went? I doubt it was as simple as Peter saying to Thaddeus, Look, friend, I'm greater than you. Maybe they were comparing success at fishing or skill at preaching. I'll let you in on a secret. I've got some inside information. They really debated which disciple would one day have the biggest number of beautiful Gothic Episcopal churches named after them. (laughs) We have this debate subtly or not so subtly all the time, don't we? Who is the greatest? No one's immune. C-suite executives compare vacations. Grandmothers talk about their grandkids' latest successes in school or on the field. On one of my trips to El Salvador, I kid you not, I listened as two residents of one of the poorest neighborhoods in our hemisphere pulled out their phones to argue about whether the iPhone or the Android had a better operating system. We have all played the game in one form or another. Most of us have grown tired of this game from time to time. What makes one great? If we're not careful with the question, answers will be supplied for us. Having the latest and greatest phone, I'll admit I'm guilty on that one. But is it owning a house in the right neighborhood? Is that what makes one great? Listing the most carefully curated combination of extracurriculars on a college application. Is it the job, the title, the paycheck, the publication? Do these kind of benchmarks measure greatness? If you just said no quietly to yourself, well, good. I'd venture you are in good company here at Holy Communion this morning. This is a congregation that tends to push against the grain. The grain is there, though. There's a danger because we have to be so careful and attentive to this question. What makes one great? Answers are provided, often so subtly that they slip into our subconscious. Without meaning to, we begin to behave as if certain attributes, certain possessions, certain ways of speaking and moving through the world make someone more valuable. We can all get caught up in the game. Jesus pushes back. Now, to understand the radical character of Jesus' words about children this morning, we have to know his historic context. In Jesus' time, the argument was not about whether life began at conception, It was whether life began before puberty. In Jesus' time, children were not valued. Children were seen as not yet people. Some say that it was because the child mortality rates were so high, it was dangerous for parents to get too attached. Children were likely to die. No one but no one would have held up a child as an example. Jesus did. He stood against the values of his day to say, my followers look up to little children. Whoever welcomes one such as this welcomes me and the one who sent me. 
Jesus flipped the tables, physically and rhetorically. Jesus upended the value systems that said adult lives matter more. In the early church, Christianity was often derided by well-heeled Romans because it was a religion for women and slaves. The early followers of Jesus understood Christianity does not play by society's rules. The lowly are lifted up, the hungry are fed, women and children, the poor and the persecuted, they are given full faith and credit. Their voices matter. Their votes matter. Jesus took those at the margin and put them right at the center. Jesus stood in a long tradition when he did this. The prophets were all about moving the margins to the center. And likewise, this reading from Proverbs 31, strange as it is, talks about someone at the margins. Proverbs 31 is a countercultural proclamation of the strength of women, their power, their capability, so often denied in the patriarchal world. You might have noticed a discrepancy in the translation between what Matt read and what you had in your bulletin. Made me giggle a little bit to give that reading to Matt a capable wife who can find her. As the rector who is married to a very capable husband, my response internally is a little bit, a capable wife who needs her. (laughs) What you have in your bulletin is my and our director of operations, Cheyenne's edit. It's not the common English Bible. But woman of valor is probably actually a more accurate rendering of the Hebrew, eshet hayil. See, Proverbs 31, it counts a woman as a teacher, as someone whose voice deserves to be heard and heeded. Proverbs counts a woman as a landowner, as a business leader, as a craftsperson, as the manager of a family, as a provider, as a generous and thoughtful caretaker for the poor and the needy. This is radical stuff. In a patriarchal world, this is radical stuff. This woman counts. She is a woman of valor. Jesus' example of the child and the woman of valor, they both push back against the default understanding of greatness that continues to operate in the background, even in our own day. Evidently, especially in our own day. We often play games of who is the greatest. The question can also be restated. Who is the greatest could also be communicated as who is at the center of the story? Today we are again participating in the concert across America against gun violence. Many of you have worn orange in solidarity. Again, we will pray for the forgotten victims, those whose names and stories are not reported. If you go down to Christ Church Cathedral these days on a Sunday morning, you'll see up on their high altar, the provost, Kathy Adams Shepherd, has been placing a candle, a little votive candle, for every victim of gun violence in the St. Louis region. She says it takes her several minutes to get them all lit now, because there's over 120. I've been thinking quite a bit about this question of gun violence and gun legislation over the past years. I grew up in a culture of responsible gun ownership. At one point, I myself was a gun owner. My dad purchased a simple hunting rifle for me. See, my dad grew up with guns. He grew up hunting. He wanted his son to share that passion. 
My rifle was kept with my dad's in a locked safe. I still today couldn't tell you where my dad kept the key. I'll admit guns were never really my passion. We went to the shooting range a few times, but in the end I never went hunting with my dad. My dad figured out pretty quickly that being cold and wet and very, very quiet while I waited for a deer, or God forbid, in a duck blind, it would not be his oldest son's definition of fun. <laughs> Guns were never my passion, but I grew up with good friends and family members who are passionate about their guns. All of them, incidentally, are white, cisgender, upper middle class, heterosexual men. Most of them are Republicans. I say that without judgment. They're simple facts about people I love. I talked to my dad before I decided to preach this sermon since he's my most common sparring partner on questions of gun policy. He said it was okay to share our conversation. We have debated the Second Amendment more than once. When I talk to my dad or my other gun-owning friends about gun laws, I often want to say this. Why are you and your rights at the center of this story? Why are you at the center? My dad would pass any background check you asked of him. While you might call some of my friends from Colorado gun nuts, they could pass a mental health screening. Why are we concerned about not inconveniencing the gun, owner, gun owners I grew up around? Why are they the center of the story when it comes to setting policy? Gun violence disproportionately affects communities of color, communities in poverty, communities with too few options. When you show up to church for a concert across America, when you wear orange, yes, do remember the victims in high schools like the one in Florida or at Columbine. But really, I'd ask you, show up for the families up there on the four miles of natural bridge that the Guardian newspaper named the epicenter of America's gun violence epidemic. We have to do better for the kids in our neighborhoods, for all of the kids, but especially for the ones that are the most affected. What I want to know in all of the gun law discussions we're having, why aren't we calling on those in the center, on the experts? Where are the black mothers and grandmothers, the sisters and brothers, the school teachers invited to testify? How do we help responsible white Republican upper middle class heterosexual male gun owners understand that the debate isn't about them? How do we make them see that the story doesn't center on them? It's not about vilifying them. It's about moving the center. I think it comes back to the initial question in this text. What makes one great? For Jesus, the answer is right there. It's not one of those where you have to sort of guess at what Jesus meant. Jesus is clear right in the text. Whoever wants to be first must be least of all and the servant of all. Greatness is measured by our ability to take ourselves out of the center of the story. Greatness can be measured, but not easily. Greatness in this Christian sense, it's, it's subtle and it's hidden by design. Greatness isn't showy. It's never self-righteous. The kind of greatness Jesus preached often stays hidden. It's a work that is slow and patient. It involves the building of unlikely relationships. 
We live in a world with all sorts and categories for greatness. Jesus pushes back on most of our world's categories. Because for Jesus, the greatest among us are those who have learned that every life has value, every life has dignity, every life matters, and at times we have to go out of our way to lift up those who are left out. We have to point to certain lives that are not being told that they mattered. We have to learn to lift them up and move the margin into the very center. For Jesus, greatness means looking to the people who are suffering most and getting in relationship, learning how to serve. Greatness takes a certain kind of courage to listen, to be quiet, to move the center. If you want to be great, learn how to serve. Learn how to seek out your neighbor, how to put them at the center of the story. Listen. Listen to the stories of women and children. Believe those stories. Believe those who have gone unheard. Greatness is involved in listening. And then finally, when you hear the stories, have the courage to act. Amen.